Hello, hello, my friends. Welcome to Rainbow Parenting, the queer and gender affirming parenting and education podcast for anyone with littles in their lives. I am your host, Linz Amer. Today, I am chatting with disability activist, lawyer, generally awesome human, Lydia XZ Brown. Lydia is just an incredibly smart and accomplished human. And I am so excited. We're talking a lot about disability justice and intersections with kids and education. I learned so much from Lydia during this conversation. And I am so excited I get to share it with all of you. There's some really, really interesting stuff that intersects between disability justice and uh, youth activism and queerness and transness. And we're here for all of that. (laughs) Um, So I'm so excited to bring you this conversation. Before we get there, a little bit of business. We have our Patreon-exclusive Halloween party coming up on Saturday, October 29th, just the Saturday right before Halloween. And we're going to be singing songs and we're going to be reading Halloween books and we're going to be talking about what we're wearing for our costumes for Halloween, how excited we are to eat candy and celebrate gay Christmas. (laughs) So please head on over to the Patreon page if you want to participate. You can support Queer Kid Stuff for $5 a month or $50 a year. If you just want to do the Halloween party and just want to sign up for our Patreon for October, that works. We also do a monthly live virtual book club. So this is our book club for October. We'll be doing another one in November, another one in December, etc, etc, etc. It's really just a fun little place for us to get gather as families and I'll be singing, I sing songs and read books and just a fun time all around that we get to do every month virtually. So I would love to see all of your faces over there. So make sure that you're signed up for the Patreon, the Queer Kids Stuff Patreon, and you can participate in our cute little Halloween party. And we might have just a little dance party, which I think is just going to be the cutest and most fun thing of the month. So head on over to the Queer Kids Stuff Patreon for that. Okay, that's enough of me talking. Let's get to my conversation with Lydia. Rainbow Parenting listeners, I am here with Lydia XZ Brown. Hello, Lydia. Welcome to the pod. Thank you so much for having me. I am thrilled to be here. Awesome. All right, cool. Can you just tell us very quickly your pronouns and how you identify? My name is Lydia XZ Brown. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, or you can just use my name. And if we're talking about how I consider and relate to my gender and how I move through the world, I usually describe myself as a non-binary trans person, but I would also say that I'm agender or genderless, which is another way of saying essentially that gender doesn't really apply to me. Mm, Amazing. Everyone kind of interprets that, like, how do you identify question a little differently? And I love kind of like hearing different folks' interpretations of it. So wonderful. I don't know how to interpret that question. (laughs) That's the point is that it's so individual to every single person. And some people talk about their gender. Some people talk about their parents who are parents. And like, that's a big part of their identity. And lots of people also just take it in like lots of different ways. So I always get excited to see how people are going to take that question. Um, You are incredibly accomplished. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do in your work? I'm a longtime community organizer policy advocate, attorney, and scholar activist. 
My work has focused for over 15 years on issues of interpersonal and state violence affecting disabled people, particularly people with disabilities who are at the margins of the margins, queer and trans disabled folks and disabled people of color and disabled people whose origins are not primarily in the global north or in Christian communities are among many of the communities that I work with or I am a member of. Awesome. And you're currently running for office? I am. I'm running for Maryland State House. All right. So all the Maryland folks who are listening to this, please go out and vote for Lydia. I'm sure you will fall in love with them and their work by the end of this podcast and you will (laughs) have um, ample reasons to vote for them. Although... You can only vote for me if you live in District 7A. Mm, Okay. So very specifically, Maryland residents who live in District 7A. All right. Beautiful. But but any of you can make campaign contributions. Mm, Incredible. Okay, cool. We'll put all those links in the um, show notes for folks to take a look at. Um, Amazing. We met... So we have... I don't know. This is kind of a cool thing that we both did together and is how you kind of got on my radar. And I think how I got on your radar, too is that we both worked with um, Amplifier years ago as like, quote unquote, youth icons. How did you get involved with that project? I truly don't remember how that began. <laughs> it was a while I, ago, I, now right? I'm wondering, I, I remember receiving emails about it and being invited to participate, but I don't remember exactly how we were connected. I think I was nominated for it. I had to have been nominated by somebody. Yeah, yeah. That's my guess. But I I don't remember that these conversations were like five years ago. I know. It's wild. So we both were part of Amplifier's We the Future uh, campaign, where they put our faces up on these really cool posters, and they sent them out to... I think something like 13,000 schools across the country, across America. And I still get DMs from people (laughs) with like photos of the poster of me that like show up all over the place. All the time. Mm -hmm. And I I recently gave a talk at a college where um, one of my friends who works there was like, wait a minute, I need to show you this. And like, we walked through this hall and they're like, look, it's your poster. And I was like, that is really cool. And also the kind of thing that makes you feel immediately self-conscious like (laughs) am i really a person that like needs to be in that scenario oh my gosh yeah i don't even know i get like old friends from college my like sister's friends from high school yeah it's wild that poster has been all over the place and has like followed me throughout my career and is always like a fun little surprise (laughs) when it turns up from a random person But yeah, I'm so glad that that project connected me to your work. And I want to talk a little bit before we like get into um, you and like particularly like your lens on things and your expertise. I want to talk a little bit about um, the ways that disability justice intersects with like transness and queerness in kids. Because I think this isn't something we've talked a ton about on the podcast. But over the last year, I've been kind of exploring my own neurodiversity and what my own brain cocktail of ADHD and autism is. And I'm, I've am i been an ally to the disability community for a long time, but getting into it yourself and, and dealing with your internalized ableism is a whole other can of worms. And that's
that's something that I've kind of been on a journey with this past year. And something that I've been really learning about is the overlap in folks who identify as queer and trans with folks who are also neurodivergent. So I'd love to just kind of get like a little bit of a lay of the land of what those overlaps are and how we can kind of think about that, especially as we're starting to approach a conversation around young children. Right. Like we could just dig into this for hours. I'm sure. You know, one thing that I'm thinking about is an encounter that I had with a parent several years ago after I spoke publicly. And I remember during the Q&A session, this parent got up, took the microphone and said, you know, my daughter, who is on the autism spectrum, recently told me that she is non-binary and wants to be called by they, them pronouns. And I just fear that so many young women are just afraid of confronting how hard it can be to be a woman in the world. And so they are turning away from being women and growing up to be women mm-hmm. and embracing this other idea about gender. And I'm worried that especially because my daughter is autistic, that that means that she's being influenced in this way that's Mm. causing her to think like this. And I remember just hearing this and thinking, I think that this parent deliberately came to the talk and the Q&A session Mm. to try to ask this very like gotcha kind of question and to do so from what we might recognize very clearly it's a really turfy perspective, right? Like for one thing, she is repeatedly misgendering her child. She explicitly told us that this child has said, call me they, them, do not call me she, her. I am not a girl. As she then refers to the child as a daughter and a she Mm -hmm. over and over and over again, you know, that it was very clear from context. That wasn't the kind of mistake that someone makes when they screw up by accident, where they do respect what you said about your gender and they're trying to break a habit, right? She was very intentionally describing her child in feminine gendered terms Mm. because she very explicitly rejected what her child had told her. And specifically on the basis of a very ableist belief, right? That Mm. because her child is autistic, that that meant that her child was not capable of understanding or articulating their own ideas Mm. about their gender, about Mm themselves. And that type of ableism has really gained traction in the last couple of years, unfortunately, because in large part spurred on by a particularly well-known, famous, extremely wealthy children's author, Mm -hmm. who also just recently wrote another terrible book in which disabled people generally are terribly villainized along with trans people. Yeah, she who must not be named on this podcast. Mm. (laughs) And now this particular type of ableism is, again, especially virulent among TERFs, which is a terrible alliance frequently between Christo-fascist, borderline or explicitly white supremacist types Mm -hmm. with people who purport to be feminists who care about women and will often even say they care about lesbian women and queer women specifically. Mm -hmm. And this particular idea essentially restates a centuries old ableist idea that disabled people are inherently incompetent, that we are permanently infantile, childlike, innocent, uncorrupted, and therefore We're not capable of having our own ideas. We're not capable of challenging a status quo. We're certainly not capable of adopting any identity, experience, 
opinion or perspective that diverges from what's considered normal or default. And if we do, if we express an opinion like maybe we shouldn't be institutionalized or maybe we shouldn't be paid some minimum wage or maybe we shouldn't be targeted for abuse in schools, it's called treatment. Or if a disabled person identifies themselves as I am transgender, whether they use that specific word or they use a different mm -hmm. way of describing what their gender is, suddenly the assumption is you can't have possibly had that idea on your own. That can't have organically come from you. That has to have been an idea that someone planted in your mind. Someone influenced you in a coercive and manipulative way into adopting and spouting off that idea, but there's no way you could have produced it. And so in fact, if you express a political opinion or you assert any information about your own identity yourself, that must be evidence that you're being abused. Mm. And what's particularly pernicious about this is that disabled people do experience astronomically high rates of abuse of all kinds, mm -hmm. physical, financial, sexual, medical, familial, spiritual, emotional, and otherwise. We experience astronomically high rates of abuse. Overall, that's before you disaggregate the data into rates of abuse that disabled people experience based on whether a person is institutionalized or living in the community, mm -hmm. based upon racial or ethnic difference, based upon sexuality or gender, based upon nation of origin or nation of residence or rural or urban areas. Even before you disaggregate anything at a baseline, disabled people experience astronomical rates of abuse and violence. Again, driven on in large part by that same presumption of incompetence. Because when disabled people report abuse, we're not believed. And the people that are presumed to be able to speak for disabled people are our presumptively non-disabled family members or professionals. And when they report abuse, they're listened to, at least to some extent. Mm -hmm. And that may differ by race or gender and other demographics, right? But when disabled people report abuse, we're generally not believed, we're not listened to. But if we assert something about the state of ableism or our own bodies, suddenly that's evidence that we must be being abused by other people that are influencing us. Mm. And what this means is that disabled people who are part of the queer or trans community remain at great risk of institutionalization, of punishment, ultimately of criminalization, all in the name of supposedly protecting us from predators and abusers. And in reality, it's just heaping more abuse onto our lives. Yeah, absolutely. My brain is like going in so many directions. I've been like vehemently nodding <laughs> along as you've been talking for folks who obviously can't see us because this is a podcast. Um, the two things that are kind of jumping out to me is like one, we talk a lot about childism and the discrimination against children on this podcast. And so much of what you're talking about is so true of like kids, uh, neurodivergent, disabled or, or not, who are there's just like such a, a lack of respect for children in this country in particular. And then when you are layering on gender and sexuality diversity and then disability and ableism on top of that, it just really truly amplifies everything that a child is experiencing in all of their identities and marginalization. So that was jumping out at me 100%. And then the other thing that I was thinking about Oh, shoot. I lost the train of thought. Oh, no. You had it. It was right there. I know. I'm just kind of like 
how many neurodivergent people does it take to find a thought? Um, <laughs> okay, uh, let's just go off of that because I, um, I'll, it'll come back to me in a second. Um, but yeah, childism and like all of these layers on top of that for sure. Any any thoughts on like particularly like disability and like children? Well, ableism and ageism or childism or adultism, we can yeah. use different words to talk about the same thing, are deeply and closely interlinked. The oppression of youth depends upon the oppression of disabled people and vice versa. I remember a conversation I had with one of my best friends years ago who studied philosophy in an academic setting for hmm. years. And he had told me that in discussions around paternalism in the field of ethics, it is commonly accepted by many scholars that there are three categories of people for whom paternalism is generally accepted as benevolent and morally permissible without ever questioning it, even if the extent to which paternalism is morally permissible for other people may be in um, contention. And the mm. three groups of people for whom paternalism is assumed as a matter of course to be benevolent and morally permissible mm. are elders, disabled people, and children. Huh. Now, the reason for this, if we think about it, all comes back to ableism and the presumption of incapacity and incompetence. Those mm. are the three categories of people who under our law are by default or can be subjected to legal guardianship. Now, you might remember from your days in school that when you had to get a permission slip signed, it always said parent or guardian. And the reason why is for most minors, which is the vast majority of K-12 students, mm -hmm. the person who can legally give consent to the school for you to participate in some activity, some field trip or whatever, mm -hmm. is your parent or one or more parents, whoever has legal custody of you. We use that term custody in family law, right? When yeah. there's a custody dispute, if there's a divorce or a separation. Mm -hmm. So one or more parents will have legal custody of you, and they're the ones who can legally give or withhold consent to schools. Mm. And for a handful of youth, they may not have a parent, they might have a legal guardian instead. Mm -hmm. If you are in the foster system, or if you are the age of 18, and you're still in the K-12 system, if your parents filed for guardianship because you have a disability, and your parents were told file for guardianship so you can still be involved in your child's life because you're advocating for them and they need support or whatever, mm -hmm. then you also still cannot legally give or withhold consent on your own behalf. The legal guardian can do that. Mm. People with disabilities of all ages may be placed under guardianship. And the idea rooting in centuries old law was intended to be benevolent, Someone who is vulnerable and may not be able to make decisions on their own should be protected from predators. And so a trustworthy person who has mental capacity should be responsible for making sure that that person isn't signed to exploitative contracts hmm. or doesn't sign away the title to their family's land or, or anything like that. So in theory, it's this benevolent idea of we want to guard this person's interests against people who might exploit or abuse them or prey upon them to make sure that their vulnerable state is not taken advantage of. Mm. But in reality, of course, guardianship is rife with abuse, as came out publicly around Britney Spears' guardianship recently. Yeah, I was just going to say. Which was imposed because of disability. Mm. Um, it's called conservatorship in California, but mm -hmm. it's the same thing, whether it's guardianship or conservatorship. Now, adults with disabilities of any age and elderly people who are experiencing age-related disabilities, especially mm -hmm. forms of dementia, think Alzheimer's, are also frequently candidates 
for a petition of guardianship. Hmm. Again, the most benevolent interpretation of the legal institution of guardianship over a child, a disabled adult, or an elderly person with aging related disabilities. Mm -hmm. The most benevolent interpretation is this person's interests need to be safeguarded against someone who might prey upon their vulnerable and impressionable state in order to take advantage of them, to seize their property, to place them in an exploitative contract, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But what guardianship does, if it is a plenary guardianship, which is most of them, meaning guardianship of the person, guardianship Mm -hmm. of their finances, their property, their affairs, et cetera, that person legally is adjudicated incapacitated. That's the legal terminology. They've been adjudicated Mm -hmm. incapacitated. And they no longer are legally allowed to make virtually any decisions about their own life. In individual states, the exact limits of guardianship might vary a little bit. In some states, a person under guardianship might retain their voting rights. But in many states, you lose voting rights if you're under guardianship. Yeah. And in general, if your guardian wants you to live a particular place, they get to decide, not you. In the best case scenario, someone who is under guardianship may have a guardian that genuinely respects them and supports them. It doesn't actually make any decisions without their input. They simply have the legal authority. But Mm. that's a best case scenario. For most people who are under guardianship, whether they're children who are by default under guardianship until the age of 18 or unless they're emancipated earlier, Mm -hmm. adults with disabilities and elders who are under guardianship, you don't have control over where you live what you do. You don't have control over your medical treatment, like what treatment you get, who you get it from, when you get it, what you get it for. If your guardian is anti-LGBTQ, they could prevent you and prohibit you from ever going to LGBTQ-related community events, let alone if you're transgender and trying to seek gender-affirming surgery. Mm -hmm. They can prevent you from doing that because they're your guardian. Now, the connection between those three groups of people, right? It's very clear in the lay of the law which is Mm. children are considered under U.S. law the quasi-property of their parents. Yes. So are wards who are under guardianship. A person who is under guardianship, who is under that legal institution of guardianship or minority, is stripped of the ability to make autonomous decisions for themselves because the law has adjudicated them in the case of an adult or the law assumes by default in the case of a minor child that that person is incapacitated. And that is why bans on, say, conversion therapy to try to turn queer and trans children into straight and cis children really need to take into account disability conversion therapy, like Hmm. applied behavior analysis, but they usually don't. Hmm. Interesting. It's the reason why institutionalization is such a threat for children, for people with disabilities, and for elders in nursing homes, mm. in psych institutions, and in large-scale residential institutions, and in therapeutic residential boarding school type programs for troubled teens. Yeah. And this is why the industry of the troubled teen industry, for example, hates the state of Washington because the state of Washington set the medical age of consent at 13. Oh, interesting. That's super interesting. I didn't know that. And I love that you're making this connection between conservatorship, which is now more widely understood because of Brittany and kids. Right. And and important to understand the history of this too, until like the 1970s in many states, 
an adult woman was also subjected yes. to the strictures of guardianship. Her husband or her father was presumed to be in the role of a guardian. The lines weren't necessarily quite as strict, mm -hmm. right? But women couldn't vote everywhere. Women couldn't open a bank account everywhere. Women couldn't have a line of credit in their own name. Um, this was also true under the era of chattel enslavement. Mm -hmm. An enslaved Black person also, by definition of enslavement, was situated legally in a similar position as a non-enslaved person who was under guardianship. An enslaved person, um, except in some very specific cases, you know, wasn't able to enter into contracts on their own behalf, mm. um, except by buying themselves freedom. Um, ransoming themselves to freedom. Um, some slaveholders may have permitted enslaved people to keep earnings from side work on their own, mm -hmm. but legally an enslaved person couldn't bring a court case on their own, certainly couldn't vote because they were considered not to be a person for the sake of the law because of the type of dehumanization, anti-Blackness and white supremacy that upheld the system of chattel enslavement. But the legal designations of people who belong to any marginalized or oppressed communities who are legally stripped of decision-making power carry a lot of similarities. Mm. Yeah, I think the way that you're connecting the dots between all of these things is really kind of blowing my mind because, I mean, it all comes back down to colonialism and white supremacy. It's, I mean, it's like obviously like so hard to reconcile with, but also like my mind is kind of worrying around like, okay, what is like the ideal world in which like children have autonomy, in which disabled people have autonomy, in which, you know, <laughs> we're all free from white supremacy and like this idea that I think is so ingrained in us that, you know, kids are vulnerable and need to be guided in the world and need to be, quote unquote, protected in a way. And I think that that is something that we've been, you know, I, I mean, to an extent brainwashed into believing that like children cannot take care of themselves and don't have their best interest for themselves. Because I think I'm thinking right now of like the conversation that's happening around child actors, right? And like how messed up that whole space can be. And I, I love what you were talking about in Washington of the age of consent going to 13. How I'm, I'm curious how that's going. That's super interesting because I haven't heard of that before. And thinking about the age of 13 developmentally and like where that would sit in a person's life. And I think, I mean, there's so much talk about trans healthcare and minors. And it's just, it's all very, very interesting the way that that discourse is kind of coming together right now. Something that I'm thinking a lot about, and this is the train of thought that I lost before, is that. Mm -hmm talking about ableism and connections to white supremacy and just like thinking about the way that disabled people move through the world and like neurodivergent people move through social structures too is that disability and neurodivergence are specific like the way that we function inherently uproots the status quo and white supremacist values and does that feel um, on the money oh absolutely yeah because i think 
something that I've been doing over this past year as I've been understanding my neurodivergence is I've been realizing like so much of my past and my trauma. I think I just like wrote off as like, oh, like I felt this way because I'm trans and I understand that about myself now. I felt this way at the time because I was queer and like I didn't get it and I was confused and like I was lashing out emotionally in all these different ways. And it all came down to because I'm queer and trans. And now I'm like working with my therapist on this. But like, the unraveling of my own neurodivergence is like, oh, all of this trauma, all of this stuff I've been through in understanding my queerness and my transness is because uh-huh. of my neurodivergence first and foremost, right. rather than and like that being a big reason why I'm queer and trans because my brain doesn't understand human social constructed binaries and understandings of like white supremacist gender identity and sexuality. Uh And so like the root of all of it is my disability, right? And like the ways that that has been oppressed by the culture that I grew up in and the spaces where I grew up in, not necessarily for any one person's fault, but because of the system that we've all been brainwashed into. And so uh-huh. I think that that's been like an interesting unraveling of like having to recalibrate just like the foundational traumas that I've been through, through a disability lens, rather than like primarily through like a queer and trans lens, even though like that is 100% part of it. But it but it's rooted in the ableism that I've experienced. And for me, it is really impossible Mm. to separate anti-queer and anti-trans discrimination Mm. and oppression from ableism that I and other people have experienced as well. Mm -hmm. You just really can't draw that distinction. It's because they feed into one another. The idea that trans people and especially trans kids don't really know what they're thinking, can't possibly know what they're thinking, relies upon ableist logic. Yeah. It really does. Yeah. The idea that, well, no kid is thinking about what gender they are when they're a small child. That's not accurate. And one of the reasons why I think that's a terribly shallow straw man argument Mm -hmm. is because it is probably true that the vast majority of children are not thinking things like gender is a performance. (laughs) Are you reading Judith Butler at four years old? (laughs) I know that I am transmasculine or masculine of center. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's almost any child. I say almost because maybe there's one precocious child prodigy who is reading Judith Butler or something, but (laughs) almost no child is having those thoughts. Mm -hmm. Sure. Almost no child is thinking... I know that I would like the following five specific gender confirming surgeries. Mm-hmm. Like, but that doesn't mean children don't think about gender. Yes. And it doesn't mean that children aren't thinking about how they do and don't fit into the ways that people treat them mm-hmm. and talk about them. Because gender is a part of human experience. It is. And it's impossible to be an alive human, including an alive child, yes. and not encounter ideas about gender in some form, Mm -hmm. even if you don't know what the word gender is and you've never heard it at like the age of four, Mm because like, I don't know what four-year-old hears the word gender, probably not many. But, you know, when I was like five years old, I knew that when I was called a girl, that that just didn't feel right. I couldn't tell you why. I'd never heard the word transgender before. I couldn't explain to you, ah, yes, my experience of my gender internally does not match my presentation or Mm -hmm. perception. But I knew that when people called me a little girl or a pretty girl or just a girl, anything involving the word girl, that it felt very similar Mm. to when I put on a really scratchy sweater that wasn't the right size and also just felt awful on my skin. That's what it felt like. But I also knew 
you know, at the same time, when I heard people talk about boys and little boys, that that word did not carry ideas that I related to either. Like yes. I didn't hear the word boy and think, oh, that's what I am. I just heard the word boy and thought, that's an interesting concept. Mm-hmm. Like I heard the word girl and I was like, that's not me. Yeah. I mean, I feel very similarly in my gender to you in that way as well. And I think like the understanding that you don't have to have like an adult vocabulary for an idea to still be thinking about that idea and concept as a young person. And that right. is where that childism comes back in. That's the straw man. Mm-hmm. The straw man argument is, oh, there is no child who's thinking about being transgender. And I'm like, maybe not using that word, yeah. but there are lots of children who are thinking the way that people talk about me doesn't feel good or doesn't feel right for a lot of reasons. It could be, I don't know, like kids who grow up in Hindu or Jewish families, hearing everyone in their classroom talking about Christmas and what they're yep. getting for Christmas and having a tree and no one ever acknowledges Diwali or Rosh Hashanah, mm-hmm. and you have to ask for permission to be absent on those days. And that just feels wrong in some way. Like you're not, you know, the seven-year-old experiencing that Christian-centric school situation isn't thinking, ah, yes, this is Christian hegemony, Christian-centric normativity. Mm-hmm. They're not thinking that they're seven years old. They're just thinking, I feel left out. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Because they're like seeing their like otherness already because of the spaces that they're in. Even if, again, they don't know how to describe that Mm -hmm. in the same way that you or I do as like fully formed adults. Yeah, I would I would like to think I'm a fully formed adult for the most part. Okay, (laughs) technically a fully formed adult. Yes. But that's that's why I just really detest those arguments. I think they're bad faith arguments that, well, their children aren't thinking about being transgender unless adults indoctrinate them. And I'm like, children are thinking about gender, whether or not we say the word, and children are already being indoctrinated by cisgender people. Yeah. I think something that's coming up for me is like complicating the idea of like how we can parent and teach children not like quote unquote ethically, and I'm not trying to get into like the philosophical, ethical moralism stuff, but I think like if parents are guardians of children by default, if we have been raised in this world in this way and the internalized ableism that's there, the internalized white supremacist structures, all of this stuff, like how do we understand how to approach being around with and and like having the response, like the legal responsibility of young children in our lives. And I think that like, that's such a hard question to grapple with when like, ultimately it comes down to like a parent just like loves, hopefully loves their child and like teachers just like love nurturing and like raising children in in the world. And like, how do we reconcile the way that our society with this disability lens, how our society treats young children and puts grown-ups in charge of young children when that's maybe not the best thing for them. Because again, I think what you were talking about as well was like, there are best case scenarios where like a guardianship like might help someone where... Well, I disagree with okay, that. Okay, okay. Yeah. I disagree with that. Guardianship, if you ask most of us in the disability community, we will tell you that guardianship is an inherently abusive institution mm. and it needs to be abolished. Okay. The best case scenario is a hypothetical one. Sure, sure. And it's one that exists, I would argue, as a form of harm reduction. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that the person should actually be under guardianship. Okay, that's a really helpful perspective to to frame the conversation around going like approaching children with this as well, because like parenting in like the legal sense of it is 
unethical, right? In the way that we're talking about it. I, this is a hard thing to like describe because this is I, I'm these are again, these are all hypotheticals because like the guardianship of children is is just a legal reality. Well, I would point you to if you haven't read about this, I would point you to learning about supported decision making practices, mm. which are pioneered by disabled people. And supported decision-making practices encompass a wide range of legally recognized permissions, as Mm -hmm. well as informal community-centric practices that help somebody who has trouble processing information or making decisions Mm. be able to make decisions with support from people they trust, but while still having full legal control of their own affairs, Mm. where no one can legally make a decision for somebody who is using supported decision-making practices. But a person might use existing tools like giving someone power of attorney Mm. or allowing someone to be a medical proxy Mm. or signing consent and waiver forms to give a trusted friend, partner, or supporter access Mm. to some of their medical records. Again, to be able to help them make decisions and understand their choices, but not to make decisions for them. And that's a practice that we should be implementing with all people, frankly. And the problem is that because of, again, pervasive ableism, Mm -hmm. we don't call it supported decision-making when a non-disabled adult does it. When a non-disabled 35-year-old or 49-year-old or 57-year-old calls or text messages their best friends, their aging parent, their sibling, their partner and says, hey, I'm trying to decide if I should go through with taking this new job offer and moving to a city. Or I'm trying to decide if grad school is right for me, or should I go back to college? Mm -hmm. Or I'm trying to decide if this training program is right for me, or should I actually propose to the person I've been dating for the last four years? Like, is Mm -hmm. marriage a good idea with this person? We don't call that a supported decision-making process, Yeah, but it is. Yeah, You're seeking support from people that you trust in your life. You might go to a mentor in a professional situation to get advice about whether this job is right for you. They might say, can you show me your offer letter? Mm. And you show them the offer letter. You might ask your cousin who's a doctor, hey, can you look at these test results that I got when I saw this specialist and help me understand it? Mm -hmm. We don't call that supported decision-making. When we ask for help, if the we is a non-disabled adult from other people in your life, for if you, including if you show them records, You ask them, hey, can you log into my medical portal and look at this and tell me what you think? Should I get a second Mm. opinion? What about a third opinion? We don't call it that. But for disabled people, we do. And I do think that that name is important explicitly to draw attention to the fact that alternatives to guardianship exist. But this is a set of practices that we should be encouraging for all people of all ages with and without disabilities, that all people need help making decisions that all people have different factors in their life, age, inexperience, education, language barriers, et cetera, that might affect what kinds of information they have access to and what kinds of information they might understand or need help understanding. Mm -hmm. All people need help making decisions. That's okay. And it doesn't mean that a person should be stripped of their legal autonomy and agency. Mm, Yeah, this this is such an interesting line of thought. And I'm thinking about like, in a world where guardianship of children is not default and where we're talking about kids having autonomy just like from birth, basically, of like what does like a scaffolding of developmental progression in like a young person look like when we're 
understanding like this is like how we can make decisions throughout our life. So like, I mean, obviously a baby can't change their own diaper or like make a decision on like what diaper brand (laughs) is being used on them. But like at what age and like, there's no hard and fast rule. Exactly. There's not a clear bright line. Like Mm -hmm. someone, and that's the problem with age to begin with as a determinant of capacity. Like what makes someone at 11.59 p.m. the day before their 18th birthday not legally capable of making decisions Mm -hmm. and two minutes later at 12.01 a.m. on their 18th birthday, now they're able to legally make decisions? Like what changed? Mm -hmm. A really arbitrary number. And most people who've raised children, regardless of religion, politics, gender, race, or culture, know that their children mature at different paces Mm -hmm. and in different ways, that a child might be very mature about work at a much younger age and not mature about relationships until they're 30 Mm. and an adult. Mm -hmm. Or the opposite, maybe someone becomes very mature about relationships around the age of 13, 14, and they don't develop maturity around working stuff until the age of 30. Mm -hmm. And every person moves at a different pace, develops and gains capacities in different areas and needs help in different ways and at different levels of intensity as they move through life. Mm -hmm. And that every 17 year old doesn't have the exact same decision-making capacity and neither does every 45 year old. Mm -hmm. We're not the same. And a good parent understands that they're not always going to get it right. They're not always going to be perfect, but they can support their kid and learning and exploring at the level the kid is at. Mm-hmm. And like the example you gave, like a baby is not going to decide what brand of diapers they're going to use. No, of course not. But a two-year-old might cry when they have some kinds of diapers put on them and not cry when they don't. And recognizing that communication doesn't have to take the form of explicitly mm. saying, I like this brand, I don't like that brand. Yeah. But you know, your kid is crying in one type of situation and not in another. That's the communication. Mm-hmm. And you may not be able to fully interpret exactly what it is that they're communicating, but you can reasonably infer that if the kid keeps crying in one type of situation, that they don't like it. Mm-hmm. There's something about that situation they're not liking. And if it's possible to avoid putting them in that situation, maybe try to avoid it. And if it's not possible, like say they do that every time they go to the dentist, then it might be worthwhile figuring out how can I make going to the dentist less scary, Mm. less stressful? How can I help support my kid feel more emotionally ready when we have to go to the dentist because you need to go? Yeah. My partner, Shane Newmeyer, who's a longtime youth liberationist, Mm. also a trans activist and currently a disability rights attorney, Mm. they put it this way. Shane says, always maximize the amount of choice and autonomy someone has, even when there are things that the person doesn't have complete control over. For example, at least give them a choice as to the time or the day. Give them a choice as to how a medication is administered. Do they get to see the needle or they don't have to look at the Mm -hmm. needle? Give them as much control as you possibly can, because this teaches children and all people that we deserve to have control over our bodies, over our lives. We deserve to make choices. And even if there are some situations where we don't have full control, we can't have a complete control over a situation, we still deserve to have our autonomy respected as much as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like two just kind of like practical things that are coming to mind with this right now is one, um, baby sign language and teaching infants to and like young toddlers to communicate 
through language that like we can both understand that's physical. I love how that's become so much more prevalent. And I think like this, it, this idea of like grown up communication versus child communication and the disconnect that's there sometimes is, uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's interesting to see how we can bridge that gap and using tools of the disability community like sign language is, is a, is a way to think about that. And then the other thing that it's bringing up is like, I famously hate age recommendations on media and and mm-hmm. I think this is speaking directly to that of like, okay, if your kid likes a picture book and they're 10 years old, then they like a picture book. And that's where they are in not even developmentally, but like even just in taste and like in stuff that they enjoy and their interests. Like, I think giving information about content is a lot more yes. helpful than saying this is only for people age 13 or older because individual children and youth and supportive parents can figure out together what are kinds of things that my child feels ready to explore and is interested in exploring and what are things where I might be concerned if I were a parent, I maybe I, you know, I don't want my eight-year-old reading graphic stories about violence, but if my eight-year-old is like, I really want to see this, how can I prepare my child that, you know, I don't want to be the person that says, I ban you from this because that doesn't set a good precedent in my parental relationship, but here's why I really think you shouldn't see it or shouldn't read it. But if you really, really, really want to, after hearing me tell you why, like, it's, there's going to be a lot of blood on screen. Even grownups think that this is really scary. Um, you might have nightmares. When I saw this kind of movie, I had nightmares. Mm. And it meant that I couldn't sleep at night, that I didn't have fun seeing the movie. It was really scary. It made me have nightmares. I was afraid of the dark. I was afraid of like a monster or whatever. Like helping my kid understand, I'm not just saying it's because I want to make a rule or make a ban. I'm saying it because I know that you've been scared of some other things that I think were probably less scary than mm. this. And I don't know that this is a good idea. But if you still really want to do it, how can I make sure you know that it's okay to say, get up and leave? Like you might start watching it, but then if you start to feel scared, you don't have to finish it. You can leave. Yeah. Or you start to read the book and you, it starts to freak you out. You don't have to finish it. You can put it down. I don't want to be a parent in the future. If I have children mm-hmm. who says, I'm just banning you from not doing this. I think it's age inappropriate, but rather this is what's in it. That, and this is why what's in it. I'm worried about. Mm-hmm. I think it's totally reasonable that most parents would be like, I'm concerned. And I think that's reasonable. I think that's good parenting, but I don't think it's good parenting to say, I blanketly ban this because it doesn't set up a good parent child relationship. And it doesn't help your child learn to make decisions for themselves, mm. including having the freedom to make some bad decisions. Yes. In the disability community, we call this the dignity of risk. The idea that there's an inherent dignity in being able to make risky and bad decisions. Mm. This doesn't mean that we advocate for saying, oh yes, go ahead and touch the hot stove, go ahead and try. But what we are saying is removing choices arbitrarily because we think you're not ready to handle this or we don't trust you to make a choice doesn't teach someone to be able to make their own choices. And all adults learned in part to be who they are and to get where they are because some of the decisions that they made were bad ones. Yes. This is something that I've gone through a lot with my own parents and like, just like they were so, so scared to let me and my sibling make mistakes in our life. And it, it has really been pretty detrimental to my life and like the way of experience, especially school that has been 
really hard. And I think uh, just like to cap on this, like just pointing out like the capitalism of age recommendations generally, like on books, but also like um, TV ratings and film ratings and like how the, I think it's called the MPAA, which is the organizing body that rates like TV and film is like a terrible organization. There's like a documentary about it that I watched a long time ago. Um, And it's just like a bunch of random people who like don't have any expertise and like are just like shepherded like secretly into a room to watch a movie and they just like get to make a decision for everyone um, of like who is age quote unquote appropriate to watch this movie based on whatever information. And uh, it's all very bigoted generally. (laughs) Right. Like the idea of two lesbians kissing on screen where it's a higher rating Mm -hmm. than a heterosexual pair kissing on screen. And I'm like, they're both kisses. I don't, I don't know why one of them is like, oh, that's for more. Well, I know why it's a rhetorical statement. Like one of them is, oh, like you shouldn't be allowed to watch that unless you're older. And the other one is, but you can watch that. It's fine. Like, you know, I'm an adult, like a full adult married. And mm-hmm. I don't like watching sex scenes on screen, no matter what the genders of the people are mm-hmm. having the sex. I just don't like it. Yeah. I don't enjoy it. I don't have a problem with them existing. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people, so many of them, who love seeing that on screen. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, there's a whole porn industry, right? (laughs) But like whole multi, probably billion dollar porn industry. But like, I'm not interested and I'm an adult, but you know, there's plenty of teenagers who we know teenagers are having sex. Does literally every teenager have sex? No, but a lot of them do. Mm -hmm. Hetero, homo, they're, they're having sex. Yeah. And saying you can't see media because it might depict a sexual scene, I think is insulting mm-hmm. and patronizing to an age group of people who are all making sex jokes constantly. And most of them have explored sexuality in some way, even though, of course, not every single one of them has had sex. Most of them are exploring in some form. Does that mean we withhold information? No, but again, that's why... I believe very much in giving people information. Mm -hmm. This is what's in it. And, you know, you're talking about age limits. I think just tell people, children, youth, and parents, this is what is in this book. This is what is in this TV show. This is what is in this movie. And then they can decide, is this something that I feel comfortable with engaging? Is this something that I think I might need to support my child if they're really insistent on wanting to engage it, that they might need some support around it? Yeah. Absolutely. I think there's there's so many conversations to come out of this and like as well as like the sexualization of like nudity itself. Like it's so interesting thinking about in Europe, children's media and children's theater is like so vastly different in the way that they depict and um, think about bodies. There is a animated children's show in I believe Denmark that's like all mm-hmm. about this guy's giant penis <laughs> and that like and he gets in trouble because he like it like it, it, his large penis gets him in trouble it's like comically long like feet long and it's like like that is like a children's show that is being made has been made in Denmark and people we're all in like a tizzy about it over here. But like in Denmark, it was just kind of like, yeah, that's like the penis show for for kids. And I'm just kind of like, you know, not every country and every culture thinks about human bodies and nudity and sexuality in the same, you know, way that we do in this like puritanical Christian, um, uh, again, circling back to white supremacist way. Um, My gosh, this has been 
wow, a conversation that has just gone all over the place in just really beautiful ways. And it just shows how... Very ADD. Very ADD. <laughs> we're very on brand for the yep, disability <laughs> episode. Um, but I think it just shows how much um, disability and disability justice and ableism really underpin so much of how we move through the world and particularly the ways that so specifically impacts young children and particularly queer and trans kids who are also disabled Mm -hmm. and like that it's also not just about those kids that it's like every kid too and this pulls into our the conversation that i'm having throughout this podcast over many episodes about childism and exploring that so um i just want to um wrap up the pod with one question and like because we've been focusing a lot of like the crummy stuff, right? Like a lot of this like is not fun and sucks. And I'm wondering where you find queer disabled joy for yourself and in your community. For me, queer disabled joy comes about informing connections and relationships with people that are about what we can celebrate and take pleasure from and not just about our shared experiences of trauma. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that trauma is always going to be there. Mm-hmm. But I love, for example, when I meet other queer and disabled people that are interested in reading and writing the same kinds of fiction as me, that Mm. share my love for food, making it and enjoying it, who are really excited about finding and petting a very adorable cat. I love that for me, and I love that for us. Mm. What a beautiful, beautiful note to end on. Thank you so, so much, Lydia, for joining me on the pod. Lots and lots to think about and continue talking about from here. Um, But thank you for coming on today and taking the time. I so, so appreciate it. Do you have anything you want to plug right now? Where can people find you on the internet space? I am all over this here internet, (laughs) but I would suggest if you're interested in learning more about my campaign for Maryland House, you can check out my website at brownformaryland.com. All the words are spelled out, brown, F-O-R, Maryland.com. Amazing. And we'll link that in the show notes so people can support your campaign. Uh, let's get more trans, disabled, people of color into offices. I love that. Um, and thank you so much for hanging out with me. Thank you. Have a fantastic rest of your day. Thanks, you too. Oh my gosh, that conversation just like fully blew my mind. Thank you so, so much to Lydia for taking the time to chat with me about all this stuff. I think it's just so, so important to think about disability justice and the work that's going on over there as we're talking about young people and children and education and queerness and transness. All of these things intersect and talk to each other and need to form coalition with each other. And that's something that's so exciting for me. And I hope you are excited by that too. Uh, Also, just to reiterate, Lydia is running for office. So if you could please go over to Lydia's website, check out all of their things and donate to their campaign. We need way more queer and trans and disabled people and people of color in political offices. So please, please, please consider donating to Lydia's campaign. And if you are in Lydia's district, maybe you could even vote for them. So please, please do that. Check that out. 
follow Lydia on all of the social medias and check out all of their work. There is, they are so prolific. There's so much stuff out there. So please, please check that out. As always, you can follow me at Lynn's Amer, L-I-N-D-Z-A-M-E-R on all of the social medias. And you can follow all of the work at Queer Kid Stuff on all the socials, our YouTube channel and the Patreon and all that good stuff. And hopefully I will see you at our Halloween party. All right, that's all I got for today. Talk soon. Rainbow Parenting is hosted and created by me, Linz Amer. It's produced in partnership with Multitude and is edited by Misha Stanton. The theme music is by Amanda Darchangelis and the logo artwork is by Abe Tenzia.